Elizabeth Booker Houston is a Memphis, Tennessee native who now calls Washington, D.C. home. She earned her Juris Doctor and Master of Public Health degrees from the University of Memphis in 2017. And she earned her Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Christian Brothers University in 2013. Elizabeth is a former Presidential Management Fellow, and her areas of subject matter expertise include public health law, federal privacy law, food and drug law, and administrative law. Outside of her work as a lawyer and a social scientist, she is also a stand-up comedian who makes witty political and legal commentary. She has performed at venues such as DC Improv and worked with comedians such as D.L. Hughley, Tony Woods, and Shantae Wayans. When Elizabeth is not on stage, you can find her on Instagram and TikTok, where she has amassed hundreds of thousands of followers and tens of millions of views. Thank you so much, Dr. Judith. I'm so excited. I love all of your work. I've been following you for some time, <laughs> if you haven't noticed. So I'm really excited to be here and very honored. Thank you. Well, you know, I think that's so interesting that you do so many things and do them so well. And I know that you talk about mental health in different ways, especially from the perspective of advocating for people because you are a lawyer and you went to law school for this. And I read about you being a patient for many years as a pediatric patient and that that was what led you to feel passionate about advocating for people. So I'd love for you to talk more about that. Yeah. So that definitely kicked off my whole life. When I was two years old, I got really sick and they found that I had really severe asthma and also some just, I don't know, there's a lot of reasons that a person can have immunodeficient issues that are not, don't always have an answer, but I just, my immune system wasn't working well. And so all through elementary school from that time, from two years old, all the way through elementary school, I was in the hospital nonstop. It was very common for me to go to the emergency room once a month. I was just in the hospital all the time. And I feel like there's one of two things that can happen with people who have that experience, you either end up with medical trauma, that is very common, or, and I've found this with other people who I've met who have had a similar experience of growing up with different health issues, different ailments, you end up being really fascinated and intertwined with the medical system. And so that is more so where I leaned because I was lucky to have an excellent care team. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, which is a majority black city. Majority of the city is on Medicaid. Roughly 25% of the population lives below the poverty line, not just low income, but below the poverty line. I was a Medicaid patient. I was on 10 care. I always say that 10 care Medicaid saved my life. It is the reason that I'm here and was able to get the care that I needed. And I had a positive experience with my medical team, specifically at Le Bonheur Children's Hospital, where I ended up working later. So that was like a full circle moment that I can talk about later. But I was about nine when I understood the concept of health insurance and I started to understand what Medicaid meant. This is the craziest story, but what sparked my interest was I saw the movie John Q with Denzel Washington. And I was, I heard like the term HMO. I heard that this kid couldn't get a heart because of insurance and all this stuff. And it just started this hyper-focus for me on healthcare and health insurance at a very young age. And I knew that I wanted to work in healthcare, health policy in some way. And so that's how I ended up becoming a health lawyer. It's It started at a very, very young age, that interest. Yeah, that's how it all began. And like I said, I ended up going back to Le Bonheur at different times. Uh, the first time when I was an undergraduate or right after I'd finished my bachelor's degree and I thought maybe I wanted to go to medical school, maybe I wanted to get a PhD. I didn't know how I wanted to go about this health policy advocacy path. I worked in cardiology research. I worked under the PI there just as an intern. And then once that amazing doctor 
told me you should probably go to law school <laughs> if that's what you want to do. He was like, us doctors, we don't really get to work in that realm very much. You should probably go to law school. I was like, um, I don't want to defend criminals and I don't want to prosecute and I don't want to sue people. I didn't know anything about how vast the field of law was. I certainly never heard of public health law, which is it later became my field. And then I went to law school. And during law school, I worked in the medical legal partnership clinic at Lavonner Children's Hospital, where we provided pro bono legal services to low income children and their families to help solve the legal needs that were exacerbating their medical needs. So again, it was like a full circle moment. And uh, I really appreciate Lavonner. They uh, until I moved from Memphis to Washington, D.C., Lavonner was a huge part of my life. So <laughs> It's interesting that you say that because you're right. As doctors, we don't understand the law. And I, I always joke to my parents and I say like, I think I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to get a JD on top of the MD and the MBM. I think I'm just going to polish it off with a JD. Do it all. <laughs> but no, I won't. I went to, one of the people in my law class was a doctor. He was wow. a doctor. He was an MD and he got his JD the same year. Dr. Gill, shout out to Dr. Gill. Everybody, we all knew him in our law <laughs> class. We thought he was crazy, but he was crazy smart. <laughs> So if you want to do it, I believe in you. (laughs) But patients don't understand the law, just like doctors don't understand the law. So if you have so many things in place and you need something, you really do need advocates. I'm curious, how many many lawyers have the training, the pedigree that you have? Very few. (laughs) It's, It's a very niche field, I will tell you. So like I said, I work in public health law. It is so niche that when I came to law school in 2014, That summer, I started exploring ways that I could really integrate this. As I knew in my head, I wanted to do something different. I didn't know how to do it. And I started talking to folks at the law school about different programs. And they said, well, we have a JDMPH program. It's a dual degree in law and public health. And with your health and science and research background, you might be interested. Do you want to be our first one? Do you want to be our guinea pig? And so I am the first JDMPH graduate from the University of Memphis. So I did that. I had to take summer classes every summer and classes at night. I would go to law classes in the day, public health classes at night. I ended up doing a very interesting practicum that combined both experiences in summer of 2016. My summer before my third year of law school, I went to Atlanta, Georgia, and I worked in the CDC's public health law program. People there who had both a JD and a master in public health, which I learned was a very rare thing, but becoming more popular. So it's a very niche field. It's very interesting. It, it has helped in so many facets of my career because I'm able to speak multiple languages. I can I, I know how to talk to medical professionals because I worked around them enough. I can speak to the scientists in the way that they need to understand. And I can relay to the lawyers why the scientists and medical professionals need what they need. And so it's really cool to almost be like a translator between these worlds. Mm -hmm. And it's also just personally fun to hop around. It's really cool that I got bored and I wanted to go be a social scientist for a little while. And then I did that for a couple of years and said, I'm going to go back to law. So it's kind of cool to be able to do that too when you get a little burnout or a little tired with something. So, Especially with the pandemic when for the first time for many of us, we were faced with something so health related that impacted our lives that became so political. I'm sure your training came into play there. My phone was ringing off the hook and my email inbox was crazy (laughs) because I had just switched into privacy law. First of all, I just had my baby. I was on maternity leave when all this happened. My son was about two months old and I had just switched into privacy law and then said, well, I was pregnant the day I went in to have go have my son. I had gotten my offer letter to go switch back to being a social scientist for a little while because I wanted to go into the tobacco research realm. I had shifted. So I was on maternity leave and I was still at the previous job. I was going to work 
a little bit at the previous job they had already knew and then transition into the new social scientist position. So it's kind of between worlds. And the craziest thing was I had just stepped away from public health law because everything I learned in law school is like the law of quarantine, isolation, pandemics, epidemics. Wow. And I said to myself, this is so niche. Elizabeth, you've got to branch out. This is not going to be relevant. <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold, it was relevant. And I'm suddenly explaining things to mentors, attorneys, lawyers who had been in their profession for decades, and they didn't know because it's so niche. And they're calling me and saying, what resources? Can you explain to us the competing jurisdictions? When can the CDC step in? What is this going on between the CDC and the FDA and their relationship? And so one viral video that I had that I heard was actually played at my law school by a couple of the professors and like somebody <laughs> shared it, I think like a conference there was a three, I think it was a three minute video breaking down the entire vaccine approval process and how that works. Because, you know, one of my specialties is administrative law, which just means like the law of passing regulations, how agencies, federal agencies work, how, what kind of power they have. It's a very dry topic to a lot of people, but I find it very interesting and it can be very complicated. So yeah, all of a sudden, all of this knowledge I had about pandemics and quarantine and isolation and what I learned at the public health law program at the CDC and how the Fourth Amendment comes into this and the Tenth Amendment, which no one ever talks about, but the Tenth Amendment is very important to public health law. All of that came into play and I was just maternity leave with my little baby answering <laughs> emails about the pandemic. I'm sorry, what is the 10th Amendment? I'm just going to expose my lack of knowledge. That's okay. <laughs> the 10th Amendment is basically like whatever rights aren't listed here reserved for the states. It is very broad. Mm -hmm. And there is a seminal case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts decided in 1905 about um, the state of Massachusetts fining people who did not receive a vaccination. It's like you can get vaccinated or you can pay this fine. And the Supreme Court said that is constitutional and the state has that power. And so it's kind of... Mm -hmm known as the foundational case for public health law and kind of starts that line jurisprudence when it comes to establishing what public health law really is, because people have heard of health law, but public health law, it's very, it's more specific. So that's what it is. <laughs> I teach NYU docs and basically they're young doctors. They don't know how to give press interviews. And many of them sometimes are hesitant about it. They're like, I don't want to be on TV. I don't want to do this. I always say to them, if you don't do it, Someone else will. And when I think about all the misinformation about the vaccine, about health laws, all the propaganda out there, and how you are like one of the very rare, rare people that understands health and law and how to educate people and your voice standing out amongst, you know, the thousands of people who don't know what they're talking about, but they have a platform. It just speaks to how we need people like you on social media because you have the capacity to break down these really complex, nuanced ideas into little bitty videos that are so powerful, but under like easy to understand, which is very, very difficult to do. I, I think people need to understand how difficult that is to do. So interesting that people keep saying that. And I think it, my love of education and breaking things down in a way, first of all, I hate, I hate jargon. I hate when people try to explain something to somebody that's interesting. If you're using too much jargon, then you don't know it well enough to explain it to somebody else. Or maybe mm -hmm. that's just not your niche. I can't say that. Maybe just, you know, it's like those who can do, those who can't teach. I like to think I can do my job too, um, but I do like to teach. <laughs> and I'm the training lead for my employer. So I handle, you know, all of the training, you know, creating the training slides and the topics and leading these, you know, organization-wide trainings and all of that. And I jumped on it. They, I remember when I came on board, you know, the person who had been doing that for so long, she was like, I don't really, I'm a little tired of it. I was like, I'll take it over. And that was what I focused on at the CDC's public health law program was I worked under the team lead for public health training and workforce development. 
And so I spent that summer presenting this information to scientists and medical professionals and all of that. And so switching gears and doing it on social media just kind of made sense, but it, it can be difficult. I, I do have people quite often ask me to speak on certain topics. People will wonder why I don't talk about certain things. And the thing is, I'm not going to talk about something I'm not confident in being educated mm -hmm. in or that I know. It's just not, I, I'm not going to do that <laughs> because I have, I could potentially be giving misinformation. If I'm not comfortable and confident in it, you're not, I'm not even going to be trustworthy or believable. I don't want to do it. There's just no interest in it. Um, so also just trying to remind myself a lot of times, because when you start being a creator and a voice online, as I'm sure you can sympathize with, empathize with, you get the urge to feel like you need to speak on everything because there's so much mm -hmm. happening. And so I try to my best to find balance and remind myself that my voice is not necessary everywhere. And I need to focus on the things that I know and that I'm good at and that I'm knowledgeable on and not feel pulled in a certain direction just because it's more popular or it's going to get more attention or more likes and reviews mm -hmm. or because people are asking me to do it. Kind of a stay in your lane <laughs> sort of <laughs> mentality. Um, and I try to give caveats. Well, it's responsible. I, 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 it's just, you know, I, I don't want to put myself in an uncomfortable position and I don't want mm -hmm. to give somebody bad information. I don't want to undermine the trust that I've built with people, especially talking about things like the vaccines. I, I, you know, I'm a mom. I talk about parenting things. I do not show my son on social media. I don't show his face. Sometimes we'll post where you see the back of his head. Very, very rarely. I'm very careful about his digital footprint. That comes from me being a privacy lawyer. But I did talk about, you know, my son being in the Moderna trial. He was one of the first children in his age group to be vaccinated when we, when they, you know, unblinded the study. We found out he was vaccinated. It was exciting. And he was one of the first children to get the booster when that came out. And so, oh. you know, I try to also share a little personal anecdotes like that with people to build that trust and connection. So they know that I'm not just talking the talk, I'm walking the walk. Like my family is vaccinated. We will be getting our annual COVID vaccine. We get the flu vaccine. We already gotten our vaccines this year. And so really trying to show people that I believe in what I'm saying. Well, there is a lot of mistrust, right? With, especially within the African-American community around clinical studies. And I run a, a research lab. I'm one of the very few black women principal investigators. So, and then, and then you have to, you know, have basically carry that, that load from the past where, you know, clinical studies were sometimes exploitative, right? Of prison populations, black populations. So you, I, I feel as a black principal investigator, sometimes I'm the one taking extra time, really showing people that, you know, clinical trials are safe. We actually need uh, BIPOC populations in clinical studies because then the data doesn't represent everyone. And how can we apply data that's only representing a few to apply it to everyone? It's just not, it's not going to work when we need to be active participants. So it sounds like your medical team, when you were a little kid, they really made you a part of the team. They made you feel included, but a lot of people don't get that experience, especially we know that Black people in particular have high mortality rates in certain areas, and there's just no one advocating for them. So we have to advocate for ourselves. So I just, you know, your story is so inspirational because you were a little kid, you had a chronic illness, you had a good experience with your healthcare providers in spite of being, um, you know, on, you said you were on Medicaid, right? Yeah, it's right? called 10 Care in Tennessee. And, and I will point out that my medical providers, I'll never forget them. I've had different ones, but my main team is Dr. Charles Stewart. He is a black male physician 
Dr. Betty Lou, who is an Asian woman. And I also think that that made a world of difference, right? And I, mm-hmm. I think, you know, that representation, having a Black, Indigenous, or other people of color in those medical roles also made a huge difference in my care, you know, just because we see. We see what happens, and, and I don't have to tell you. I know you know as a Black doctor, <laughs> a Black female doctor, how important your work is and how important your representation is for advocating for your patients. And so I, I do also stress that, that I think that made I do think that made a difference in my care. Mm-hmm. And it made a difference in what you did with your life. You've dedicated your life to uh, informing the public and using law and medicine to inform people. So, And you're reaching millions of people. Uh, I think it's important for people to realize that, especially in healthcare, the power that they have. One interaction is just is not just one interaction. That could be someone who grows up to be like you. Yeah, it's I don't know. I hope they know how much they have positively impacted my life. That Le Bonheur, how much that beautiful hospital positively impacted my life. And growing up in Memphis, I'm very familiar with St. Jude. I had interned at St. Jude, volunteered with them as well. So the medical facilities in Memphis, I think, are not typical for a lot of other cities as well. And that's interesting considering the other issues that my hometown has with poverty, with crime, with those things. And, you know, my personal life informs a lot of this. And, you you know, you mentioned mental health earlier. And that is another sad part of honestly how I ended up on social media in the first place was I needed an outlet to focus my grief because as a lot of my followers know, my brother was murdered in 2017 in Memphis and just random act of violence, random shooter, random mm-hmm. act of violence. My brother didn't know them. They didn't know him, you know, and several people shot and passed away. And so I also started connecting with people on that level of that grief, which is such a common human experience that you can, you experience it in so many ways. It's interesting. I I talked about my death anxiety, which I still, I will say I'm navigating. I'm not struggling with it. It's not going to go away, but I'm navigating it every day and connecting with people on that level and talking about it and everything from you know, people grieving because of medical trauma, grieving because of a pregnancy loss, mm-hmm. grieving because they lost a family member, grieving because they lost a life that they thought they were going to have, even though it wasn't a physical death. There's so much grief in different aspects of our lives where you're grieving and mourning different things. And I've found that to be a very common thread as well to, to relate to people, because I think grief and fear are are. I've noticed of just very much the the basic emotions when you see a lot of people latching onto disinformation or misinformation. And I just started to see that connection more and more and it just was really clicking. So it's yeah. multiple traumas. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you had the illnesses as a child and then loss upon loss. It's multiple traumas and processing it is so important. And I do research in high functioning depression. And from what you're saying, you are a young mother dealing with grief, working. How, what, did you pull on to cope adaptively? What were the things that you held on to that helped you? First of all, therapy. <laughs> therapy is just, mm-hmm. I can't tout it enough. Even if you think everything is okay, you get a wellness check for your physical body. Why wouldn't you do a wellness check on your mental health? One of the things that I did, especially as a new mother, is I set up a postpartum anxiety and postpartum depression therapy session before I gave birth. I found and set that up to anticipate that. And then two weeks after I gave birth, before everything started getting, I was already in therapy, a virtual therapy appointment. I was already in it. Uh, My husband and I have talked about things like couples therapy to help navigate new things, navigate new parenthood, transitions, life changes, even though like marriage might be good. I think, you know, nothing's falling apart. It's, it's like a preventive. It's, it's a way to mm-hmm. learn the tools that you need to cope before everything hits you. So therapy has been a big one. I did weekly grief therapy, including group therapy after my brother passed. And it was, 
the best thing I could have done. I am fully, I, I have not started any medication, but I always tell people I'm very pro medication. I've recently started researching because my anxiety has gotten a little more just to be very transparent. So now I'm looking into talking to my medical team about potentially looking at anxiety medication and move on to that next level to see if that'll help me manage. You know, all of these things have been stigmatized so much over and over again. They're really tools to help us. They're not scary, right? And it can be a little hard because, you know, when it comes to finding the right therapist, finding the right medication and finding the balance, there can be some things you have to work through. There can be some missteps here and there, and that can make it easy for people to turn away. But I think folks should know that it's an iterative process of finding what works mm -hmm. for you. It's not, sometimes it clicks immediately and that's great when it does, but if it doesn't, that's fine. You're, you know, you're not abnormal. That's for a lot of people. You have to find the right fit. Especially with postpartum depression, when people understand that after you give birth and in your third trimester, your hormones drop. So it is a hormonal issue that causes some of these mood symptoms and causes the anxiety. And I think especially within the Black community, where we have higher rates of untreated postpartum depression, where we have higher mortality rates when we give birth, how could you not be anxious knowing the numbers? How could you not have depression knowing that your people tend to die more when giving birth? Birth, a happy thing, right. something that you most, you mostly, most people want. How could you not have feelings about that? And talking about things before they happen, planning for things before they happen. And some of our studies will have a lactation consultant ready, a therapist mm -hmm. ready, people to help with childcare ready for people who are high risk. And I, I got to start thinking like, why are we only doing this for high risk people? Everybody needs to have this plan in place. Everybody needs this knowledge because the human brain is afraid of the unknown. And if we have a plan, if we know what's coming next, we have less anxiety, we have yes. less depression. There's less of an adjustment and everyone feels safer and secure. Yes. And all of those things that I, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of the podcast, The Birth Hour, but they talk about different birth experiences. And I've been interviewed on there twice, once about my birth experience, and then again, talking about my postpartum experience. And one of the things that I said is I feel like there's this focus on birth and birth plans and birth preferences, which is great, very important, but there's not enough postpartum planning. And I planned for postpartum more than anything else. And I'm so glad that I did everything from, I mean, physically pelvic floor therapy and all of those things, because I did the research about it. But also I picked a pediatrician, had a lactation consultant on site because I didn't want to have to go out and find one if I was struggling. Because when mm -hmm. you're in that space, having my therapy set up, knowing that when it was time to wean my son, that's another hormone drop that can cause a whole other wave of anxiety and mm -hmm. depression that you have to get over that bridge. And so really trying to learn about postpartum, which is not just six weeks after you give birth, it, no. it lasts longer <laughs> no. than your pregnancy. So mm. yeah, I, I, I love that there's so much more research being done about, you know, mm -hmm. what can happen, what you can do to support mothers, especially like you said, black mothers. I, I remember right mm -hmm. at my birth was the smoothest, easiest birth you've ever heard of in your life. It was great. Everything was great right before it was time to push. And they said, great. I looked at my husband and said, I am so scared right now because of everything <laughs> you mentioned. Yes. Because I still had the back of my mind. What if they forget, mm -hmm. you know, what if I have retained placenta? What if I have, you know, this is that dead anxiety, that anxiety that makes me probably worry about things a little more. <laughs> what if I, I knew I had an extra load of placenta. What if I had a retained placenta? What if, what if I, I hemorrhage? What if like, what, what is going on? They've already given me Pitocin for induction. Can they give me more Pitocin if I hemorrhage? Like what, how does that work? You know? And so all of that's running through my mind and everything ended up being fine. But as you said, it's not always fine. And that weighs in the back of your mind. And that your partner could have postpartum. It's not the same. It's not hormonal because mm -hmm. they don't have the drop in hormones, but the adjustment of it. Partners, they don't get sleep. 
They sometimes feel as if they're not as needed. Mm -hmm. They sometimes, you know, the adjustment, there's something called adjustment disorder with depressed mood with anxiety. We don't talk about that either, that you have two people going through adjustments and society just isn't the way it was years ago. Back then you had a whole village helping you out. Now it's, you both have to do it. Then you have to have a full-time job. Then you have all these responsibilities and everybody's in their own silo. There's not that community that used to be there. And yet we have to do it all. So of course we're going to have depression and anxiety and having a plan for that having people who can bring over meals because that's one less thing to think about someone who helps you with the laundry because babies take a lot of you have to do a lot of laundry nobody tells you that (laughs) so much laundry so many blowouts and if you pump and if you have to clean those like it's a whole thing and when i was doing some of my first uh, postpartum studies in my lab i had just given birth and i was in there with the woman teaching them how to pump and i was just like this is hard nobody (laughs) nobody teaches you this you know and if we're prepared again if we know what's coming down the line then we're less anxious we're less depressed there's less of an adjustment yes right because we need to feel safe yes exactly it's all an adjustment And, and like you said transitioning with what happens in this day and age you know it's almost impossible to survive Mm -hmm. in the United States without having a two-income household at this point. Things are not like they were. We do not have universal maternity and paternity leave. It depends on your employer. Just so many things that we don't have, a lack of support. Even just like we talked about earlier, me being on Medicaid as a child, we don't have every state that has expanded Medicaid. I live in Maryland. I'm very glad that they have expanded Medicaid here. That's great. Adults, regardless of you know, their age or whatever, they, if they are below a certain income level, they can qualify for healthcare coverage. In Tennessee, where I'm from, absolutely not. My niece is 21 years old. She is a senior uh, veterinary science undergrad major at UT Knoxville. She had a gallbladder attack about a month ago, had to go to the emergency room and found out that she no longer had her Medicaid coverage because she turned 21 and was just booted right off. And she's a student. She's 21 years old, you know, so mm-hmm. we found out that fortunately her university had an insurance plan that she could get. And fortunately, University of Tennessee has so many medical facilities. That's their hospital. That's their clinics. And so, you know, she's able to have that set up. But what if she were going to a more rural university or what if she were going to school somewhere that didn't? Pro- I know my school did not provide health insurance, my small undergraduate school for students. And so you think about all of these things that we don't have just for day-to-day living and then you throw children and postpartum and pregnancy and family planning i'm you know it's great to see the ways in which we have become more critical of you know choosing to have children or grow families for women and men and you know all folks who identify as child free or folks like myself where i just said i wanted to have one child my husband and i and that you know one child family is becoming more common and that's great But the flip side of it also is that you're seeing people have their family planning halted, you know, just stopped because they are like, I can't afford to have kids. I want to have children. Mm -hmm. And then you end up with this horrible classist way of basically saying that only the well off can have children. And so it just becomes and I I know I kind of veered off course there into that whole line of thinking, but it just kind of goes back into, you know, these systems of injustice. and, And it's it's terrible to see. It's just terrible to see how the lack of support is so deeply embedded in our in our society, in our culture. Well, I just did a talk on Black love at the Mental Wealth Alliance. I'm blanking on the name, but there's a professor from Emory. I think her last name is Lewis. And she wrote this book. It's called Black Love. And there's additional parts of the title. But she talks about how from the very beginning, the system was set up so that 
black marriages just didn't have a, a real chance. And so she talks about the GI Bill and how it was disproportionately given out. And so there was this point in America where white middle-class families had this edge because if you weren't living in a state where the GI Bill was given out, Black families who had the same rights weren't given that edge. So that began the real rift in terms of the socioeconomic divide. And then she talks about how even programs that are set up to help people who are lower income, especially like housing programs, if you wanted to say partner with, you know, if a, if a woman wanted to partner with a man in a different household, they couldn't really live together because then they would lose their their housing. So it's like all these things are set up that, you know, not some of them are not ill-intentioned, but some of them are where, you know, families who aren't of a certain background just don't have a chance. And social media is where you get this information. I remember learning about this on one of uh, like a talk on social media. And I was like, wow, like of all the things that I have to read, I would have probably not been able to, to access that book. And now I know that book exists and I know that information exists. And it, that's why it's, it's so important to have well-informed people like yourself talking about things like that. And I'm curious as to as to your thoughts on what's happening in our education with our Black history being really erased. I know your your mother, and I'm sure you have these concerns. I'm a mother as well, and I really it's gotten me involved in my daughter's curriculum. Like, let me see what you're learning. What are you learning? Because <laughs> I want to make sure you're getting a history so that's appropriate and reflective of the contributions of everyone in this country. So, uh huh. <laughs> I'm already a public of ten, a product of Tennessee public schooling, so I'm already very wary. I've lived in Memphis majority majority of my life. I lived in Memphis, but for about five years, we moved out to this suburb called Bartlett, Tennessee. It was when I was a teenager. We moved out there, and we were there until I was 17, and and then we hightailed it to Richmond, Virginia, for about a year. Bartlett is known for being very Republican, very white, at least. Very much at the time I was there, I don't know if the demographics have shifted much since I've moved away, but that's how it was. Definitely was a whiplash for me, having come from a majority minority school, mostly Latino, actually. I was in a, a, a school that was a good chunk of the students were Hispanic, had you know a lot of like English as a second language learners. And so big shift <laughs> for me personally. And you know, they taught us uh, that the Confederate flag was representative of heritage and not hate. That was such a thing wow. that I was taught, right? Wow. Very different perspective. And then I go to Richmond, Virginia, my senior year of high school. We moved from my dad's job and I went to school. I was in Henrico County, Virginia. And I know I'm in the capital of the Confederacy and I'm not expecting any different. And I get into my U.S. history class and everybody was talking about the Confederacy. And they were like, well, it was about slavery. It was about slavery. It wasn't about states' rights. We all know that that was. And I was just like, oh, they said it. They said the thing because they go on and on about states' rights at Bartlett. You know, they're like, that's all they're going to focus on. They're not going to admit it's about slavery. Yeah. And I was and I'm looking around at these white students who are like, yep, slavery. And I'm just like, oh, this is different. And I think that was the first time that I really understood the disparity in the education system in the United mm -hmm. States because of the way the state versus federal system is. It worries me very much. I feel very fortunate to live in what I call a very liberal progressive bubble in the D.C. area, in the suburbs here. I, I love the curriculum. I love the way that parents talk. The, the, first of all, it's very diverse, which is excellent. I, I've loved living here because the diversity is amazing. I've, I've gotten to interact with <laughs> so many different cultures, different people. I love it. And I love the way that parents are very candid about anti-racism, not just saying, oh, no, mm -hmm. not colorblindness. In my parenting groups, they talk about mm -hmm. anti-racism. They talk about that. 
it's embedded in the curriculum, it's, it's expected. And then of course I have a son who is autistic. And so the special education programs here are also very good. And, and, you know, my son isn't siloed off from other children. He's, you know, right there in the preschool program with the other kids. He's not just shunned away, you know, and all of those things are great. But then I turn around and I see what's going on in my home state. I see what's going on in other states. I see the way that you've got textbooks in Texas calling, what did they call slaves? unpaid volunteers or whatever weird language Mm -hmm. they tried to use in those textbooks. I see that happening. And it worries me greatly because it's one thing to say, oh, well, you can just move to a different state. No, that's not possible. It's a very privileged take. Mm -hmm. I have seen people Mm -hmm. say that. Well, just pack up and move. It's not that easy. Mm -hmm. It's not that easy, especially when you talk about what you mentioned before about not having a village, needing to be near your support, weighing the Mm -hmm. pros and cons, having the money and the resources to even do so. But we're also a country and we can't just say, oh, Elizabeth, I'm just going to move to this privileged little progressive bubble out of the D.C. area and never think about anybody else. Because can I do that? Sure. I could absolutely do that and just ignore everything else and say, well, I left Tennessee and that's good enough. But it's not good enough. So that's why I speak out about so much and, and why it's important for us to really start looking at this as a country and not just sectioning ourselves off by states. And, and I understand we do have to be aware of the state laws. And, and, and as a lawyer, I fully understand and appreciate the fact that jurisdiction makes a difference, that leadership makes a difference. And, but something's got to give. We are, we are at a breaking mm-hmm. point in this country. And we have, we have really got to actually be united. As cheesy as that line sounds, we've actually got to be united. It can't just be in the name of our country. This is getting to be too much. Yeah. And that harmful language, it spreads and it may start with one town. It could spread to the next. It could spread. And it's just it's really harmful to our kids and to their self-confidence, their sense of self, because it's invalidating what their ancestors went through and what they go through because of that racism, because of the systemic racism that followed in awe of all the hats that you wear. And I know it's hard to be a mother and doing all of these things. And you did mention that your child has aut- uh, is autistic. Is that right? Yes. And one of the things, one of the rare times that I do interact with attorneys is when I'm advocating for some of my patients who need certain things in the education system. I don't know what it's like where you live, but in New York, sometimes you have to hire an attorney to, I guess, sue the Board of Education to get a school. And like a lot of people aren't aware of that process. IEP attorneys are definitely pretty common. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because you worked in public health and advocacy. I'm wondering if you have any training in that area. I do. I worked uh, for the general counsel of the Shelby County School Board back in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I mentioned, but my master of public health, my thesis work was on adverse childhood experiences and the effects of toxic oh, no. stress on the developing brain and specifically how to create trauma-informed systems. So I worked mm. with the ACEs Tennessee Building Strong Brains organization to help try to come up with a toolkit of how different industries can be more trauma-informed. And I worked with the Shelby County School Board on that for, for a time as well, about a year. And I got to learn all about IEP, all about 504s, wow. all about all of those things. And so now it's very much, you know, in my personal life, it, it comes into play. But I was on an IEP as a child on the opposite mm. end. I was in the gifted and talented program. And I always talk about how it's very interesting how society views certain kinds of neurodivergence compared to others. Giftedness, I know I was hyperlexic as a kid. 
I've never been diagnosed autistic. I've never identified with uh, the experiences of my autistic peers, but I understand that, you know, a lot of gifted children have autistic traits. I have that hyper-focus. So I got interested in politics and health insurance at nine years old, you know, all of those things that help mm-hmm. me relate so much to that community. Yeah. And then of course you have folks who are ADHD, again, another kind of neurodivergence. I always said it's very interesting how we have negatively painted certain forms of neurodivergence and it's very mm-hmm. much rooted in capitalism Gifted children Mm -hmm. and autistic children have so much overlap, but the reason why gifted children are placed on this pedestal and autistic children are not is that gifted children are seen as contributors to capitalism in some way, and autistic Mm -hmm. children are seen as a drain on it because of their need for resources. And once I learned that and understood that, it made so much more click in my mind because my IEP process was so easy as a child. Of course, give Elizabeth what she needs. Of course, let her have her extra time to decompress and read her stuff and whatever she wants because she's in our gifted and talented program and those children make us look good and those children, you know, and it's come, it's kind of that whole thing goes back to that phrase. That's like, if you, what is, I, I'm trying to think of the exact saying. It's like, if you constantly judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, you'll never understand its worth mm. and its ability. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it is. Well, thank you so much for being in our safe space and please tell us about your upcoming projects and where we can find you. Absolutely. So We'll be headlining a few shows. Uh, very excited just to kind of get my toes in the water about uh, headlining. So October 26th, Westside Comedy Club in New York City, and December 28th at DC Comedy Loft in Washington, DC. You can also just find me on social media under the handle Booker Squared. It's B-O-O-K-E-R-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D. And I also have a Patreon where I'm providing a little extra exclusive content. So if folks are interested, but otherwise you could just check the link, you know, put on social media for any upcoming shows or events. And just thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> thank you so much. We're so excited for you and can't wait to see what you have coming next. Thank you. <laughs> nice meeting nice you. Nice meeting you too. Bye.